Welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy with our teacher, Steve Butler. We are in a series right now exploring the important prophecy terms found in God's Word. You can follow along with our free study guide that you can download from our website. Simply visit whcbradio.org. That's whcbradio.org. Click on the program name, Exploring Bible Prophecy, and there you will find our free study guide. Right now, Steve is exploring the important prophecy term, the Son of God. So open your Bibles, download your study guides, and prepare to explore Bible prophecy. Hello and welcome to Exploring Bible Prophecy. We have been uh, exploring the scriptures to deal with seven sets of important prophecy terms. And we're doing this in preparation for a review of the 30 prophetic events that are listed in the Bible that take place between now and the end of time, if you will, the beginning of eternity, which we find at the end of the Bible in the last chapter of the last book, Revelation, and found that it was important to have a a firm understanding of what I consider to be seven sets of two terms, like Son of God, Son of Man, seven sets of terms that I found myself using as I was preparing, if you will, preparing to um, lead the study of those 30 uh, chronologically sequenced uh, prophetic events that are yet to take place, and that if we didn't have a good understanding, a good grasp from a biblical foundation of these terms as they are compared and contrasted, how they're used in the Scripture, that you you can lose a fair amount of understanding of the significance of each of these prophetic events and who they involve and who they do not involve. And that's just as important as to know who they do not involve because we get a lot of interesting teachings that are out there on radio and television and in church today that tend to have a a distortion of the scriptures because they don't have a good biblical foundational understanding of the difference between these key terms. And I find that the Son of God, Son of Man, is probably, of the seven sets of terms, the most important set that we need to look at, because we're talking about the center focus of the whole Bible, and that's Jesus, and how Jesus manifests himself to different groups of people. And when you understand the difference between the Son of God and Son of Man, then you can more readily and quickly identify who the audiences are that he's speaking to or perhaps speaking about. He may be talking to a a group of believers about a group of unbelievers. And so he may refer to himself, to the believers as the Son of God, but when he's talking about the unbelievers in in the discussion, he's referring to himself as the Son of Man. So which is it? Yes, he is both. He is the Son of God and the Son of Man. But if you can understand the difference in how those two terms are used, it really opens up the Bible to you, or at least I have found that to be true in my study. And I would love to hear from you uh, at steve at whcbradio.org if you have different perspectives, and we can all certainly learn from each other. We need to be open at all times. I do not believe that any of us, regardless of how, how studied we are, none of us will have a full grasp a full understanding of God's word until we see his son face to face at the rapture and then we will have the full mind of Christ and that's going to be 
just an amazing time that I really can't comprehend at this point, but I know I'm eagerly awaiting, <laughs> eagerly awaiting to see uh, my Lord and Savior face to face. So when we were together last time at Exploring Bible Prophecy and looking at these important prophecy terms, we were in the book of John. We were looking at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and to see how they were using the term Son of Man and Son of God, and specifically Son of God, uh, here at this uh, this particular point in time. And we were in the book of John, chapter 1, and we went through the first uh, three verses to show that um, Jesus is being referred to as the Word, and he's referred to as he and him, to show that we are talking about a masculine person that is the Word. And of course, it's all laid out to us as God graciously does over and over again. He explains his words. If they're not uh, intuitively clear, if you will, uh, when they're stated, he clarifies it somewhere else for us. So he never, I never find the Lord leaving me hanging uh, on what did he mean by that. If I just take the time to explore the scriptures, I will find an answer to what he meant in that particular uh, place. So we're in John chapter 1, we've been through verses 1 through 3, and then the uh, answer to that, to answer who is uh, described in verses 1 through 3 and verse 14, and then I left us uh, at verse 45 in John chapter 1. So I'd like to go to the book of John uh, to start today in uh, verse 45, and this is the beginning of Christ's uh, ministry when he's pulling together his disciples. And a disciple is somebody who literally, if you look at the the genesis of the word, it means a student who sits at the feet of the teacher. And you found um, at that point in time and up until just a few centuries ago, students or disciples would actually leave their families and follow teachers. And I don't mean the, the cults today, but they would actually literally for educational purposes, not for religious cult purposes, but for educational purposes, would follow a teacher for some period of time and and figuratively and literally sit at the feet, because they didn't have the formal classrooms, sit at the feet of the teacher. So that's what disciple means. Uh, They did not take on the term apostle until later, because remember the word apostle means messenger. A disciple is is learning the word. An apostle is taking the learned word and and sending it out, taking it out as a messenger. Apostle basically is a messenger. So these are the disciples early on in John, in Christ's ministry. And we go to uh, verse forty five of John chapter one, and it says that Philip, one of the disciples, found Nathaniel. And said to him, we have found him, and him is capitalized him, uh, capitalized H, found him of whom Moses in the law, so he's referring to the Old Testament, and also the prophets, again, referring to the Old Testament. And remember, at this point in time, there was no New Testament. None of these authors had written yet. So all that was available to them was the Old Testament. So we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So you can see early on 
that this Jesus that they're referring to, they're seeing him as a carnal son of a carnal man, Joseph, Mary and Joseph. So it, it helps you to see that these disciples at the very beginning did not have the full array of knowledge uh, that we seem to think that they have. They gained this knowledge through the revelation of truth in walking with Jesus over the period of time that they were with him. They were basically with him for about half of the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. Remember the first part of Jesus' ministry, he was, for lack of a better descriptive term, an itinerant pastor that was going around the countryside from village and town to village um, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. I'm the king. I'm here if you will just recognize me as the Old Testament fulfilled prophecy of a king. I'm him, and I'm here to set up my kingdom. So that's what the gospel of the kingdom means. And then um, he called disciples, and then he, he taught those disciples, and those disciples, he took a handful of them, 10 specifically, and made them his 10 apostles. Or, uh, yeah, the 12 apostles, excuse me. Um, so he's, he's starting to develop these relationships early on in the ministry here, and he says that it's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, that we think we've found, and this is Philip, telling Nathanael. And in verse 46, Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Uh, Philip said to him, come and see. Now it's interesting to step out here for a moment. Nathanael is from a town called Cana. And it's interesting if you go down to verse one of chapter two, it talks about Cana of Galilee, where Nathanael was from. And this is where we have the wedding and we have Jesus with the disciples when he performs his first miracle where he turns the water into wine. So Nathaniel, being up in Cana, would, we have to assume, but it's fairly easy to assume correctly, that he would know about Nazareth because Nazareth, if you, if you find a map of Israel and look up in the northern part of the country in what is called the Galilee, and look towards kind of the center of the northern part of Israel, you'll find Nazareth. It's a fairly decent-sized city today. It was a small one back then. And then to the right, at least in the old maps of Israel, biblical maps, you'll find the little town of Cana. And then if you go continuing to the right or to the east, you then come to the Sea of Galilee. So this was up in uh, the region called Galilee, and it's reasonable to assume that Nathaniel would have some knowledge of Nazareth and what kind of a town it was. Actually, at the time of Jesus, Nazareth was a Roman uh, military outpost primarily, but there were obviously Jews living there. And he makes the point in verse 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So he was thinking, surely something as um, low on the socioeconomic scale as the town of Nazareth Someone as great as Jesus of Nazareth, the promised Messiah, uh, couldn't come from there. But Philip says, hey, let's come and see. So verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. So what a, what a wonderful pronouncement that Jesus makes about Nathanael here coming from from Cana, 
He identifies him as an Israelite, but he says an Israelite with no deceit. And we'll talk a little bit about what that means from a historical perspective, but we can't do that until we get all the way to the end here, and then I'll pull it back together again because he makes an observation that will connect, uh, at least in a very general way, Nathaniel with the father of the nation of Israel, and that is Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. So we'll get to that in a moment when we get to the end of the verses here. But in um, he says that this Nathaniel, and Jesus is pronouncing, this man is an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. So what a wonderful uh, description there is. In verse 48, Nathaniel said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So he's making a, if you will, for lack of a better term, a godlike observation here that only he could have known because no one was around was around Nathaniel when he Jesus supposedly made this observation. Verse 49, Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, <laughs> you are the Son of God. You are are the king of Israel. So not only is he identifying him as the son of God, but also the king of Israel, which is why Jesus came to fulfill that prophecy that he was going to set up his kingdom. And in order to have a kingdom, you have to have a king. And he was to be that king. And Nathaniel recognized all this. So if you go back to 47 and recognize that Jesus said he's an Israelite, so here's somebody who kind of understands the Israelite culture and should, to some extent or another, have a knowledge of the history of Israel from the Old Testament, and then to make the observation in whom there is no deceit. So the assumption here that Nathaniel was an honest man, probably a very religious man, and you uh, probably more so than probable because he's making this observation in 49 that Jesus calling him rabbi, which is Hebrew for teacher, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. So he's he's now saying he's, he's, he's giving his allegiance to this man because he's an Israelite and Jesus is the king of Israel. And even more so than that, he's referring to him as the son of God, which would be the inference from study of the Old Testament scriptures, particularly passages like Isaiah chapter 53, so we're gathering here that Nathaniel, who Jesus is calling here, is um, fairly well read among uh, most of the um, disciples who would, the few that would become the 12 apostles. Um, because uh, later on, you'll find in the book of Acts where it says, aren't these men referring to the, the apostles that are prophesying now in, in various tongues? And so forth. Aren't these men from Galilee? And nothing good comes out of Galilee. In other words, that's an old backwater hick town or hick area. How in the world could these men be so intelligent and be able to speak all these different languages? Uh, I believe there were 16 that were spoken because there were 16 people, or there were people from 16 different regions of the known world speaking, uh, and they were, by the way, they were Jews coming in for the festival in Jerusalem, but they were being spoken to in 16 different languages. And these guys are saying, aren't these guys from the Galilee? Aren't they Galileans? 
And you remember Nathaniel says, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Well, Nazareth is part of the Galilee. But he is looking through all of that and recognizing that this particular man is the promised king of Israel. He is the son of God, and he is our teacher. And what a wonderful observation we have here that John is sharing with us through the leading of the Holy Spirit. And in verse 50, Jesus answered Nathanael, and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these, and you'll see things greater than the understanding, that the conclusion that you, draw, you drew of me being the king of Israel, the son of God, simply because I said I saw you under the fig tree when you know that nobody was anywhere around you yet I saw you, which would which, which suggests God-like qualities. And he says, because of that, you believe me? He says, you'll see greater things than these if you stay with me as um, one of my disciples. That's my words, but that's what he's inferring here. Verse 51, here's what I want to conclude with. And he said to him, so Jesus said to Nathanael, truly, truly, I say to you, Nathanael, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. On the Son of Man. So you see in 49, Nathaniel saying, you are the Son of God. Jesus is saying, you're going to see angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So this is a, a distinction that we want to talk about here. Not a great deal because we'll go further into it when we look at the Son of Man term in detail uh, in a later program, but I want to make the distinction here because it shows you how even Jesus can use that term, and it tells you, it helps you understand who's he speaking to about what, because Nathaniel sees him as the son of God, and remember back in 47, Jesus is referring to Nathaniel as an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And he says that, and it's kind of a figure of speech here that God is, uh, Jesus is using in verse 51 when he says, you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, if you've been in your Bible for a while, you've probably read the accounts in the Old Testament, particularly back in Genesis 28, where Jacob, and it's Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes, and he's in a town called Bethel. And remember, Bethel was where uh, Jeroboam set up one of the two golden calves once the kingdom split back in 932 B.C., 931 B.C. Um, so that's where Bethel uh, is known for, but also it's where Jacob wrestled with the angel and had his name changed from Jacob to Israel, the father of the 12 tribes, to, to show the distinction between Nathaniel and Jacob. The distinction between Nathaniel and Jacob, the first time God reveals himself to the Israelites this way, and then the next time and when he reveals himself as the Son of God, Son of Man to an Israelite. So we want to look at, compare, and contrast those two points, and we'll do that in our next program. But now we want to transition to our Q&A once again and continue on with our look at the biblical accounts of how God interacted uh, through the various parts of the triune Godhead with man 
in man's fallen state. And of course, man's fallen state started in the garden and his fallen state as mankind will be in that fallen state until God does away with sin and death. But that doesn't happen till the very end of the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible and the beginning of what we call eternity. So in the meantime, God is interacting not directly himself because he cannot be in the presence of sin, but he's interacting through other uh, the other two components of the triune Godhead. And we've been through uh, Genesis 18 where we saw where the angel of the Lord came with two other angels to interact with Abram uh, prior to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So to make the point that we're we're seeing God interact with man through angels, and one of those three angels was referred to as the Lord. Then we build on that by looking now in uh, Numbers 22, and we're not going to go back and get into detail because we need to move on. We've got so much more to cover. But we went into Numbers 22, and this was about Balaam, and this is where it says that God capital G, God, spoke to Balaam. And you're thinking, wait a minute, God doesn't speak directly because of what we said about the sin nature. But later on, we find that was in verse 20. We find in verse 35 of Numbers 22 that God is referred to as the angel of the Lord. And we made the the comment, the descriptive comment, that there is a difference in the Bible when angels are made manifest to mankind, that there is the angel of the Lord, which is the pre-incarnate Christ, the second member of the triune Godhead, and then there are actual angels. Remember back in Genesis chapter 18 with Abram, the three men were then referred to as three angels And then one of those angels was referred to as the Lord or the angel of the Lord. So we see that clarified for us, and we see it again in Numbers chapter 22. And in Numbers chapter 22, um, we built on that when it shows Balaam having an interaction where his donkey, (laughs) his donkey talks to him because God has allowed the donkey to see the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ, standing in front of him. And Balaam, of course, is sitting on his donkey, whipping him because the donkey is trying to move out of the way of the angel of the Lord who is is trying to stop them from moving forward. So as the donkey would move to the right or the left, the angel of the Lord would move to block. And, of course, that was frustrating Balaam because Balaam couldn't see what was going on. So he's beating the donkey. So the donkey starts talking to Balaam and saying, look, you've been riding me for years. Have I ever done Why are you beating me like this? And then at that point, it says at the end in verse 31, I believe it is in Numbers 22, that the angel of the Lord manifested himself. And it was this powerful looking angel with a sword saying, you know, that if you had gone any further, I could have taken this sword and killed you but I'm here to direct you. So here is the triune Godhead, God, if you will, but the triune Godhead and a component of the triune Godhead, in this case, the pre-incarnate Christ, is taking on the form of an angel. And we know it's distinguished from the other angels by the term the 
angel of the Lord. And we know that when the angel of the Lord interacts with mankind, as we see throughout the Old Testament, man falls to the ground in fear. And the angel basically allows that um, positioning of the human to fall to the ground to to be a sign of reverence, whereas a an angel, any other angel, will say, "Okay, get up, because I'm working with you." You know, we're we're both followers of Christ. We're both in this together. But only the angel of the Lord do you see the clear reverential awe afforded the angel of the Lord, because he is part of the triune Godhead. There. All right, I want to show you another component of the manifestation of the triune Godhead. And this actually ends up being the, one of those classic um, accounts in the Bible of God interacting through a burning bush. So if we would, let's go to Exodus. Go to Exodus chapter 3. And this, again, is one of the four, five books that uh, Moses wrote, the Pentateuch, also known as the Torah. So you have Genesis and then you have Exodus and this account, of course, is the exodus from Egypt. And this is where Moses is interacting with God early on. And in Exodus chapter 3, let's look at verses 1 through 6. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now Moses was pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The angel of the Lord. There it is. Do you see that? Verse 2. The angel of the Lord. And that's Jehovah. The angel of Jehovah. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed so Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said to him, Here I am. Verse 5, Then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. In verse 6, <clears throat> he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And we know in this case that he was looking at the pre-incarnate Christ which, if you will, is the direct representation of God. He is God. But again, God um, could not be um, there in the presence of sinful man, so he's there in the presence of the angel of the Lord, the angel of God, which is the pre-incarnate Christ. So it is another manifestation of God. That's the point I'm trying to get across, is how God graciously interacts personally with mankind in different ways because he loves mankind. He wants to guide mankind. He wants to protect mankind because they are his creation. And he does that in so many marvelous ways. So in this case, he does it through a burning bush. And then we're going to see, see him manifested in another form as a soldier when we get into Joshua. 
and we'll do that in our next uh, Q&A portion of our program the next time. Remember, if we don't talk again, I'll be seeing you in the air. Thank you for joining us on this edition of Exploring Bible Prophecy. Exploring Bible Prophecy is a production of WHCB. Learn more at whcbradio.org.